0: Welcome to Episode 54 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. It is my pleasure to introduce Tracy Pate. Tracy, a listening and spoken language specialist, certified auditory-verbal therapist, is the program coordinator for the Listening Center at Arkansas Children's Hospital. The Listening Center is an evaluation, therapy, and consultation program designed for the development of listening and spoken language skills for children and adults who are deaf and hard of hearing. For the past 30 years, she has worked exclusively with this population. Her responsibilities include working directly with families to educate and empower them on issues related to hearing loss. She consults with early intervention professionals and school districts statewide to educate them on intervention for students using cochlear implant technology. She provides direct speech, language therapy, and telehealth sessions to families as well. She also uses a telehealth format to consult and educate other professionals who are serving the deaf and hard-of-hearing population. She received certification to practice auditory verbal therapy in 1998, which places her in a group of highly qualified individuals, specifically trained, to teach listening and spoken language to young children who are deaf and hard of hearing. Again, it's my pleasure to welcome Tracy Pate to the podcast. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. I want to start, like I do with most of my interviews, is how did you get into this field of first speech-language pathology?
1: Well, it's probably a story that's similar to other speech pathologists. I didn't know what it was,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it was not my first choice. My first choice was actually accounting. And I quickly, oh, wow. yeah, I quickly realized that um, I didn't like the classes and I didn't even like the building. I didn't like anything <laughs> about it. Mm-hmm. So I told my um Counselor, um, at at midterm, I was like, I have to make a change, and what I was actually interested in was accents and accent reduction and all of that. So Mm. when I said that, then uh, my advisor was said, "Well, you need to look at speech pathology. Now it's a master's level track. Is that okay? Well, I'm not Mm. even really sure." When you're a freshman, do you really know? You're <laughs> right. Here? So I was like, sure, it's okay, it's whatever.
0: <laughs> then
1: I found out very quickly that I did really like it. I was very interested in in all of it. So mm-hmm. it was an easy choice for me, and I never looked back.
0: And and where did you go to university?
1: So I went to undergraduate school at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. And then graduate school was the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock.
0: Awesome. And so are you from Arkansas originally?
1: I am. Yes.
0: Because when we first met, you were in Alabama.
1: I was. I was. So after finishing school, um, I did have a specialization for birth to three-year-olds. So I knew I wanted to do babies. And I was Mm -hmm. seeing Primarily birthed to five at my first two jobs. And the job, the second job was he- here where I'm working now, actually at Arkansas Children's Hospital, doing something completely different back then. That was a long time ago.
0: Right.
1: But uh, then my husband got transferred to Alabama. I loved hospital, I loved mm-hmm. that um, environment for speech pathology. So, sure. Thought was to contact the Children's Hospital of Alabama and see if they could um, use somebody like me. Well, what happened is they had one position open, and hmm. it was in their program designed for deaf and hard of hearing children. I had zero wow. so interest in deaf and hard. Of hearing.
0: <laughs> yes,
1: um, but I needed a job. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work, continue work in a hospital. So oddly enough, they hired me and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. I got to see a whole different style of speech pathology work. And I saw a whole different dedication to long-term outcomes for children, because that's what you have in this population. And I had never really seen that before and I wasn't that far out of graduate school, but far mm-hmm. enough. Right. That I really appreciate that the, their dedication, their level of knowledge, and the way that they mentored me to have those same characteristics. So I was a lucky girl.
0: That's awesome. And so was it there that you first started to learn about uh, auditory verbal therapy in those days?
1: It was. It was the program um, was designed for helping deaf and hard of hearing children use technology. It had a very strong auditory verbal therapy component to it, but it also had a track for children who were using sign language and that, you know, if their parents were ones that wanted to actually build auditory skills in addition, then they were welcome so it was duly tracked, but yes, very strong auditory verbal therapy track.
0: And who, who were some of the people that were there at the time in the AV track?
1: Oh, so my main main, main mentor was Nancy Gregg, and she yes. was the coordinator for the program at that time. And Angela Nackery was there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, those were the main two. But then I worked with a host of excellent audiologist oh yeah given that then i learned so much from them and the relationship between audiology and speech pathology for deaf and hard of hearing children and so it was awesome
0: <laughs> just to have that uh that whole environment uh, being supportive for your learning and just soaking it all up
1: yes and working together Not separately in separate departments or separate service lines. That's generally how it's organized, at least here in Arkansas it is. But no, there we worked hand in hand with our offices together and our treatment rooms next to each other. And it was a great
0: way to learn. Great place. And I I interviewed there for once and decided not to come. And. Went a different route, um, and we can talk later about <laughs> about why I didn't do that. Um, But sometimes I think back and say, "Well, if I'd have gone to Alabama and been there, what you know would I still be there and working with? Was it uh, Audie? Was a surgeon?
1: Adi yes, Audie Woolley.
0: Yeah, Audie Woolley. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do have those thoughts every now and again. So then so,
1: after, yeah. you know. A decade or so, um, I got a call from my old employer, Arkansas Children's Hospital, and they said the the one person they had on staff um, who had been treating this population was actually going to retire. And so we talked about what would it look like if we built up a program. And I was a big believer in the program that I was in, so. I, I didn't do a ton different. I just replicated it and then modified some things about the program to suit the general population of Arkansas, which is different than Alabama. So on the surface, it looks very similar to that program.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, on the surface, it probably looks very, very similar.
1: Yes, it, it looks very similar. But some of the expectations that we have for families and uh, ways that we... Assist them in treatment may differ. It may not differ than the program is in Alabama now, but it definitely differs a little bit back in the nineties when I was there,
0: right right, and so when did you leave Alabama in two thousand in two thousand right see i you left so I didn't go there so yeah, uh, that's- <laughs> <laughs> you're the reason why I didn't go there, yep. <laughs> so uh, you've so you've been in back home in Arkansas at Arkansas Children's uh, all this time.
1: All this time, yes.
0: And so, what what have you seen over the years? Because Arkansas Children's, uh, with with Patty Martin, with yourself, with others that are there, they've that facility that that hospital has had just th- this wonderful reputation uh, nationally, internationally. Uh, especially in this area of kids with hearing loss. Right. Uh, so how, what would you credit all that to?
1: Um, I would say, I think primary credit goes to Patty Martin, who was my manager when I got here and who believed in the program and believed mm-hmm. in my vision and mission for it and went to bat, I'm sure, numerous times, more than I know, about keeping the program's integrity even Mm -hmm. it's not a moneymaker and they have Mm -hmm. the longevity of that has been they still are very supportive of what we do and how we do it regardless of i mean productivity is is a big deal because it's a
0: hospital
1: but i hear stories of other other people in other facilities and it's uh much more of a deal and it's not Mm -hmm. not here as much and i my team that I've built here is allowed to just work as we do and with complete commitment to each individual family child who comes through and give them what they need it's right. been a little easier with early um, implantation so some of those babies are not needing us as intensely or length of time as in the past but there's still a lot who do Mm -hmm. i don't know how much of it is just a a function of being in a relatively poor rural state but we do see a lot of our patients who come through who have additional disabilities Mm -hmm. because of that they do need us more intensely Um, But that's okay. We're committed to giving them whatever they need. So it may be traditional deaf and hard of hearing auditory verbal therapy type program, but it may be other things as well. So that's definitely uh, different than what we had in the past.
0: Sure, sure. Well, it's, I think a lot of places, if they they really knew how to, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, I can't talk today. Uh If they really knew um, how to um, um, set up a program for kids with hearing loss, or if they didn't know, I should say, they should definitely go and visit with you guys and 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 see how you've done it.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, we have come a long way. We still have a long way to go, but we've come a long way. Tw- a long way. Audiology and my team and. We have a program within a program, so we we have named our team program as the Listening Center, mm-hmm. and so it's just a subset of our speech pathology department, but we work primarily with audiology, mm-hmm. and so it's integral back and forth between my group. We meet weekly in, within Teams and monthly with audiology, uh, monthly with the ENT docs. We've got three CI surgeons, so wow. that really busy, really.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Busy. But we're thrilled. Um I would say the most challenging thing for us right now is really appropriately providing habilitation for unilateral single-sided deafness, which I'm sure is, is difficult for everyone, but mm-hmm. it's been a challenge to really habilitate those ears um, when you've got a normal hearing ear on the other side. So so we've really worked using the technology that we have. Um, we're really working on that. Because what mm-hmm. we don't have access to is an extra sound booth, which would make it easier, but we don't have extras around here. so.
0: Right, right. I've I've thought that this is one of those areas where telepractice can come in because yeah. you can stream to the implant. Um, yeah. and, and that's that why I've... Yeah, that's what I've recommended for a few, I don't have that many, but a handful of single-sided deafness kids that I'm working with. Most of them are teenagers. Wow.
1: Mm. It's it's uh, Teens are hard for a different, you know, just- Oh,
0: just, lots of reasons.
1: Lots of reasons. <laughs> lots of reasons why they're a little more difficult, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: we're seeing little ones. And so mm-hmm. parents have to be involved. And I would say the biggest challenge for that using telehealth and we we do it internally also is the parents have to hear what we're doing right and so if you That's stream a,
0: directly yeah.
1: to the yeah. implant, then they can't hear and we have to be far enough away that the normally hearing ear can't pick up on what we're saying mm-hmm. so um you know in a university setting you tend to have observation rooms things like that We mm-hmm. don't have that in a hospital there's no right. way right and observe any kind of treatment. So, yeah, we have a few little logistical challenges, but we're making it work.
0: Sure. I, and, and what I've done is, because um, I'm at Akron Children's Hospital twice a week, and and what we've done is uh, for those parents that have access to uh, 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 iPod, an iPod, geez, <laughs> uh, AirPods, dating me there. Uh, they can put that in their ear, and I can call them on the phone and then and just put the phone on speaker as I'm talking to their child, so they end up being able to hear what I'm saying and kind of be able to participate in in the session so that has worked fairly well um, again, you know, then you get into situations where families only have an iPhone or their smartphone to connect with. Yes. which is being used for the child to, to get the services and then you're like well okay how are we going to do so you end up with some some issues there and we've had to sort of do some workarounds on those but right. overall it's it seems to be going okay
1: yeah i would say the same for us although uh probably the biggest challenge has been knowing how to rate progress mhm that's been a real challenge, because some that I would think would move a little faster are not. And I will tell you this, the ones who are moving faster, definitely 100% have parents who are actually working on things at home on a consistent schedule.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: who are not, it's really evident, more so than I would say with the bilateral kids. I can really see it. A oh, really? Yeah.
0: Very I, interesting. I I need to document that. all that.
1: I know. I
0: just <laughs> do. And and that reminds me. You you, um, you wrote something recently for for um, was it the Asha leader,
1: right? Yeah, Asha leader live, and so yeah. it was a little story um, to go along with. I believe a whole um, section for them devoted on cochlear implants and. Mm-hmm a story about a patient of mine and kind of her journey and um yeah it was fun to write it was fun i had not done that process before so i was i was really excited to get to do it
0: sure would you mind just giving us a a summary of that
1: oh sure so it's a i mean in my world it's a fairly typical story until you get to the point where you're determining, are they, you know, is that child making enough progress? And she wasn't. Mm-hmm. So then the parents had a dilemma of making an alternative choice. Um, could, they could do a visual route of communication or they could do different hearing technology. And um, And this child did not fit the criteria through FDA, or even really off-label cochlear implantation. She really had quite a bit of residual hearing. And so now it was getting to a point where, what do you do? You know, it's a race Mm -hmm. against time. And you know that she's not progressing, but she's so little still. She was about 18 months old. So you're like, maybe I just need more time. Maybe we need to be Mm -hmm. more aggressive. It's really hard for parents to judge that even when they're getting advice from the rest of the child's team. Right. So these parents decided to go ahead and see cochlear implantation. And we did that and uh, she just blossomed and moved really fast and then didn't really didn't. Need My type of services after about the age of three, she went into preschool and got more traditional services and is doing well. She's a teenager now. So Mm -hmm. just talking about the longevity of that and how important the team approach is Mm -hmm. for cases that maybe on the outside look like they're very traditional, easy type cases, but there are challenges for almost all of them. And for this little girl, she was having some challenges, and it was up to her team to do something. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad of the choice that her parents made.
0: And great outcomes as a result. Yes. And so let me, let me ask, um, what are the biggest challenges? You mentioned challenges. Uh, what are the biggest challenges that you guys are seeing today? And, and I have a couple I want to share with you that I've noticed here in Ohio, uh, what are you seeing in Arkansas?
1: Well, as I said before, it's a relatively poor rural state. Mm. So um, almost all of the families have every adult, mom, dad, mom or dad, whoever is um, a primary caregiver for that Child, they're working and they're right. working long hours, and typically they're working the types of jobs that if they take off, they don't get paid. Right, and it's um, gas is pretty expensive, and mm-hmm. when you have a vehicle that doesn't have great gas mileage, and you live a you know two or three hours from the hospital. That eats into your budget and you're also losing income. So I would say that has been probably one of the biggest challenges, although I have seen extended family really step in, grandparents, aunts, uncles, they really have. So for those people who have support, then it's working. And telehealth has made all the difference in the world because almost everyone has a smartphone of some type with Internet access. And that's really all they need for me to conduct telehealth sessions with them. But they're working more hours than my clinic is even open. It really is causing some difficulty. So, needless to say, we do some early morning sessions and some later sessions, and we try to accommodate when we can.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. We're seeing the same thing here in Ohio, and there is a sort of a vast section of Ohio that's um, that's really a part of sort of Appalachia, and you know, quite poor and. Um, very little resources in those communities. And and so telehealth and telepractice has been uh, really a, a blessing for, for many of those families. But like we were saying earlier, some don't have technology or the internet is spotty or, you know, there are challenges to even get telehealth in place. Um, but it has helped uh, alleviate some of those issues. Um, what are you seeing in terms of early intervention?
1: Are you talking about the organization of early
0: intervention
1: <laughs> or the concept of early intervention?
0: Well, I will. Uh, I will elaborate a little bit more. Um, we. I. I seem to see now that it, essentially in Ohio, that um, a lot of early intervention services are consultative, mm-hmm. and. Um, Right now, most of my families report that they get about an hour per month, and it's that consultative style. Mm -hmm. And so that's one issue. The other issue that I'm starting to see come up again is this idea of uh, parents being told you don't want to limit your child's communication. So let's do, we can do it all. We can sign, we can do listening and spoken language and whatever else you want to throw into the mix. Um, and and parents, you know, even with all the counseling in the world and really trying to educate them, when they get hit with, you don't want to limit your child's communication and progress, do you? You know, it's it ends up, you know, they end up, Usually, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you know, starting with sign and trying to do AV. And then, then it gets really muddled. Yes. And so I'm starting to see more of that. And I was at the, um, the Eddie conference. It was uh, back this year. Uh, it was down in Cincinnati. And I was seeing that more than I've ever seen it before um, as being sort of this mindset that's being used in early intervention services?
1: I would say um, there are similarities with my experience in Arkansas. It's more of, um, they would probably not appreciate me using this terminology, but I don't know how else to describe it. Early intervention for deaf and hard of hearing children, it's almost like a a brokerage um, system where, They consider that their that their main objective is to find services, but not really keep them in the early intervention program per se. So they will release to a third party, which we have a lot of in Arkansas, Mm -hmm. uh, developmental preschool type programs where they go to school uh, five days a week, and they get whatever therapy services or developmental services that they need while they're there. Mm-hmm. So, um, it doesn't cost the parents anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Cause if they have, uh, funding through the state Medicaid program, then that pays for it. So as you can see, parents, it's, it's just, it looks like a perfect situation. And for mm-hmm. some, It is a really good situation. Um, I wouldn't, they don't tend to get a lot of advice that's specific to deaf and hard of hearing. So we don't have a lot of, you know, you don't want to limit your child's communication and all of that because many of the children in those developmental preschool programs are using a PEC system or, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ones out there that they're using. So they just throw the deaf and hard of hearing children into the mix of that. Mm. So I see them trying to use PECS with them, not very successfully, more right. than I see sign Interesting. And so uh, what has happened, though, is if they go a route of interacting with the early intervention programs through our Arkansas School for the Deaf, then you'll start seeing you know, don't limit the communication, Mm -hmm. all of that. We have um, one of the only fluent ASL and signing exact English uh, SLPs in the state on staff. So what we tell parents is, okay, if you're interested in sign, if that's your interest in starting there, then Mm -hmm. let's really do it not one hour a month let's right. re- do it and what i find is, is some really see that they want to continue that and others tend to drop out and do more listening and spoken language as those type of skills start to develop in their children and so it's not really advice mm-hmm. from us we're supportive of whatever they choose
0: right
1: but they find that it gets really complicated it does. Trying to do auditory-verbal therapy alone is very difficult and very um, time-consuming. And then trying to learn to sign at a level that's above your child, so you can be your child's teacher, and your child's learning really fast.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. Most of
1: the parents are finding that this is that they maybe have bitten off a little more than they could choose. So some choose to. Forgo that route and really focus on listening and spoken language. And some don't, and we support them regardless.
0: Right, right. And you know, the parents who want to do it, as you're saying, realize they they're not going to be language models for their children. So,
1: they, and that's they, what I
0: typically see. They'll start to fade. You know those those signs.
1: Yep, yeah, I agree.
0: But what what we have here is the opposite in terms of what you were just describing in terms of early intervention of referring out to community resources here, they do not refer out. So they want to be the primary and only service provider. And uh, it's really parents through word of mouth, or, you know, if they happen to get connected to the audiologist or some, some other way that they get to, you know, like program I have, or the university, or anything like that, because they don't hear that from the early intervention program. Right,
1: that is so. And in- ours want to, definitely don't want to keep them.
0: <laughs> it's just the opposite. They they think that if they refer out, that they'll have to pay for those services. Oh, okay. You know, and so that, that's the feedback that I've gotten. So it's 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 just um, it's it's really upsetting when you see kids that are two and a half, you know, maybe have technology, and you see how much or the lack of progress they could have been making, uh, have made, and what they could have been doing by now if they had just shared those families and got parents to the resources that are available to them.
1: Yeah. You know, I would say outcome difficulties, like you're describing, is the same everywhere because the missing link is service provision by people who are knowledgeable about deaf and hard of hearing and mm-hmm.
0: understand
1: their process of developing listening and spoken language. So when you don't know that piece,
0: right.
1: your outcomes could be greatly affected. If you are lucky and have a child who doesn't have additional disabling conditions, that might work. That traditional type of speech pathology Mm -hmm. for birth to three might work. But when you start branching out and having other areas of difficulty, it is very common to find children who are underperforming. And probably the worst part of that is that the professionals assign to those children Don't really know that they're underperforming or don't have high expectations for their performance. So, therefore, the parents don't either.
0: Right. Exactly. It's, it's
1: it's, failing that child.
0: Right. It's, it's sort of that, you know, that, that sort of cesspool that keeps circling and going down the drain, you know, Um, and they don't escape from that until the child turns three. And of course, here the school district gets them and they're like, what's been happening with this child. We can't, you know, they have no language They have, you know, whatever. They're so delayed in what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, early intervention is like, well, that's your problem now. They've aged out.
1: (laughs) Let me tell you, when you release to these developmental preschool programs, um, they keep them till five. So the district gets them at five and they have limited language and limited skills. And that's a really different picture than if they're three. Sure. Bad at three terrible at five
0: right exactly
1: yeah. I mean yeah it's a huge problem
0: yeah it's just you know all these years later uh, we still fight the same little battles to try to get services to these families and even with all the progress we've seen in terms of newborn hearing screening and early intervention to a degree and and the hearing technology it's still... We still have these holes in terms of getting the right services to the families at the right time.
1: Yes, I am really so um, supportive and pushing all of our university training programs to do more training for audiology and speech pathology about listening and spoken language development Mm -hmm. and their role in that. With some success, you know, we all of the university training programs at the graduate level in Arkansas do offer at least one course. Right. That may not sound like a lot, but it's way better than zero. I've been doing some um, some lecturing in Mississippi.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Zero courses at all Mm -hmm. of their graduate training programs. So as we're talking and sharing this message with practicing slps in that state you know you have to start at the beginning and the beginning is the university training program right and so get, if,
0: get them before they get out there and yes. form those opinions and everything else
1: at, or don't because or they, don't right and so they think well, they're deaf. How in the world would the child perform any better than what he or she is performing? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I have this conversation with my grad students all the time we we fortunately, we've had that focus here with going back to you know carol flexer and and denise ray at akron and and yeah. I've been fortunate to be here uh, as a part of that and we we've uh, gotten a second training grant um uh, just back in twenty one two thousand twenty one so we have we have a a group now getting trained two two cohorts uh, first and second years and uh, and we've been able to have both audiology and speech pathology involved. That's so, wonderful. So <laughs> yeah, so it's you know it's uh, a few programs out there still trying to make this happen. Um, I'm getting word um, through the grapevine that uh, OSEP and the Department of Ed. Apparently didn't fund any. I think this past year didn't fund any that were focused on spoken language and and hearing loss.
1: That's so disappointing.
0: And and that sparked a meeting <laughs> with with a lot of those uh, teacher training programs, as well as you know some SLP programs as who also had submitted, and uh, they had to explain why they didn't get the you know the funding that kind of thing. So hopefully, it's not some type of uh, built-in bias against that. And, and that's what I'm so afraid of because we want to, of course, get the grant renewed when it's up and hopefully you know, those issues won't be there. So Tracy, as as we start to wrap up here, um, speaking of new graduates, what advice would you give someone who's maybe come out of one of those programs, who's gotten a little bit of training or a little bit of exposure Uh, And now they want to leave their graduate program and conquer the world in terms of listening and spoken language.
1: So I occasionally I will have someone, a new grad or someone close to graduation, ask me about that. And it's the same thing I tell practicing SLPs when I lecture is knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. There's one of you in that crowd that knows legislature groups or legislators. Mm -hmm. There's one of you in that group that understands funding or is interested in that area. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of you in the group that are clinical, but you're disappointed in the outcomes of what you see. But once you see that it can be different, you'll never want to go back to that earlier model So education, whether it's self-education, because maybe you didn't get it at the graduate school level or Mm -hmm. you need more, there's so many resources for education in the deaf and hard of hearing population. Just go to hearing first and start looking Mm -hmm. and reading and taking courses. They're all free and so well done. And then you start reading and you read the research and you start reading the medical journals if you're in a hospital of your, or you're um, interested in that type of program. And you just continue on and on and start forming connections with other like-minded SLPs. And before you know it, you're going to have a little cohort that's interested in the, in the stiff and hard of hearing population and you'll have networks across your region or across the state that supports this population. I would say maybe that's the best advice to give them. and that and it's okay that it takes a while to complete that
0: right, right. yeah I think some people sometimes they with my grads, uh, for example, they'll say, uh, you know, they want to do it. they're They're ready to graduate. They're ready to go off in this world." And then they'll say, "Well, I'm going to get a job in the school district. And I said, well, does that school district have a program for kids with hearing loss? Well, no. So, Well, if you don't get the experience, if you're taking jobs or you're not getting access to these kids, you're not going to be able to do this. And so it's like, you know, it's like, I, and now I've started really talking to him much earlier, you know, about. If you want to do this, then you have to be with a population where you can get access. And uh, I think they, you know, many of them are, they have boyfriends or are married and they have to stay in one place or go to another place and that kind of thing. So I just tell them to dump all their boyfriends and, and, uh, and focus on, on this instead. <laughs> Not many of them agree with me, but, uh, but I wish more would. And yes. we, could- would have more clinicians out there.
1: I just was lucky because I followed my husband for his job transfer too. I totally understand their predicament. I okay. just got lucky and landed into a job that became a real passion for me. And here we are, twenty five years later, almost, and mm-hmm. going strong.
0: Wow! Again, I think you guys are amazing i think you are amazing and you continue to do this excellent work and and thank you for being one of my mentors out there in the field that i look to and uh and i wish you nothing but uh, all good things as you go forward
1: thank you so much todd i really appreciated the invitation to the podcast
0: i want to thank tracy for joining us again on the podcast i've always admired her And everything that they're doing at Arkansas Children's Hospital, they are just an awesome group of people. And for years and years, they've had a wonderful reputation of providing services to children with hearing loss and their families, as well as adults uh, with cochlear implants. And so if you ever have an opportunity to go and interact with that team with Tracy, uh, please do. They are just a phenomenal group, and I am very fortunate to have had Tracy on the podcast, and I really thank her again for joining me. And I thank you guys for joining us uh, for this episode. If you don't mind, leave us a five-star review. That helps us to get more listeners and more subscribers to the podcast. And until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.